We didn't have the inhibitions of an older, cautious person who is worried what the neighbors think of him. Does anybody get anything by being called respectable? Because usually that's the opposite of respectable. Usually it is a lack of self-belief in the opinion you have because you think it's not important enough to get upset about. It's not important enough to lose something over. It's just, if I say something in a meek voice, maybe they'll eventually see that I'm right. No, that's not how the world works. They hated us, but we were relevant. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. That opening quote is a phenomenal quote found in Jonathan Van Maren's recent book, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. And that is a quote by an activist who fought tooth and nail, fought against abortion supporters trying to get rid of the Eighth Amendment, and continues to fight today. And, and there's something really, really important about that. I, I love the, you know, the, the mentality that many people have is if I just say something meekly, the truth is going to come out and it's going to stand. And the mentality that youth defense, we'll talk about youth defense later, and the Irish pro-life activists had was, this is not the way the world works. We need to get out there. We need to bring the truth about abortion to the streets. We need to make sure that people know precisely what abortion is. And, and the media hated them. Uh, so many other people hated them, but they were relevant. Anyway, we're going to get into that a little bit more. For those of you who are new to the program, thank you again. We are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children here in Canada. And this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. We take to the streets, we have conversations with people time and time again, and we want to share with you some of the things that we have learned. But today, it's the, the focus is going to be a little bit different as we have a conversation about what we can learn from the Irish pro-life movement. Before we get there, my name is Peter, I'm the host of the show, and again, I'm joined by Cameron Cote, who I neglected to, to introduce until this point. My apologies, sir. No worries, Peter. It is an odd time here in Calgary. Not only, obviously, do we still have COVID restrictions that are causing us to amend and um, adapt our outreach projects, but also we're in the middle of a polar vortex. It feels like minus 40 outside. Hence, we are taking a brief pause from activism. That said, though, I am really excited about today's interview because something that I hear on the street constantly is this idea that a nation simply cannot function in the 21st century unless they wholeheartedly embrace abortion. 
that mothers and um, other, I mean, mothers, yeah, are, are going to be dying left, right, and center um, through back alley abortions. Maternal health care is going to be absolutely terrible if abortion is not accepted. And yet today we're going to talk to some pretty cool people, especially Neve, who is going to share a little bit about the Irish pro-life movement and how for 35 years, not only did they survive in this um, 20th and 21st century, but also they thrived, having one of the lowest maternal mortality rates um, in the world. And through their restriction on abortion, saved over 250,000 lives during that 35-year span. I'm pretty excited. Not only that, we also got some pretty cool news coming up, Peter. Uh, one of the other things that you and I are both working on is prepping for our first Ask Me Anything, which we're planning on holding on Friday, March 5th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, whatever time zone you're in, you can adapt it from the Eastern Standard Time from Toronto because we all know the world revolves around Toronto. Um, but... Yeah, we're excited to do this. Ask me anything. It'll be an open um, Zoom call in which anyone who is a Patreon supporter, as long as you've registered as a patron by Friday, February 26th of this year, um, you will be invited to join us for this open evening, whether it's one hour, two hours, three hours. We're going to keep talking until you're tired and you guys leave or you run out of questions or something like that. And so um, if you want to join us for our first ever Ask Me Anything on Friday, March 5th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, please sign up, um, register as a Patreon. We'll uh, put all that info in the show notes by Friday, February 26th. I'm excited for that, Peter. I, I don't know if you are, but I know that I certainly am. No, I am. Uh, we have a few people who are supporting us already, and I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with them, seeing what sort of questions they have, and just kind of, you know, discussing it all together. One other thing as well before I get into the introductions, we are giving away a signed copy of Jonathan's book, which we're going to talk about, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement by Jonathan Van Maren. He will sign it, and we will be giving one of those copies away. Stay tuned. We're going to share a little bit more about that at the end of the conversation. So let me introduce our guests. We have two guests today. One is Neve Ivrian, and the second is Jonathan Van Maren. Neve is an Irish anti-abortion activist who has been active in the fight since 1992. She co-founded Youth Defense, which is Ireland's largest and most active pro-life organization that campaigns all over the nation to defend and protect pre-born children. Neve fought tirelessly as abortion activists sought to remove the Eighth Amendment that protected both the mother's life, the mother and her preborn child, and now campaigns for preborn children with the Life Institute. She is also a commentator for Gripped, which you can find at gripped.ie, G R I P T.ie. Our second guest is Jonathan Van Maren, the author of Patriots. Uh, and Jonathan is a column, columnist, author, public speaker, and pro-life activist. He holds a BA in history from the Simon Fraser University and is CCBR's communications director, CCBR being the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. His previous books include The Culture War, Seeing is Believing, and A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide, which is co-authored by our colleague Blaise Elaine. His work has appeared in the National Review, the National Post, and elsewhere. And if you want to find his blog, you can check him out at thebridgehead.ca, thebridgehead 
Ca. So the reason we're having both Jonathan and Neve on to have this conversation is because Neve was there. Neve has the experience. She was the one that fought on the ground, on the streets, rallying the troops, uh, uh, pressuring politicians, going and shaping the culture. She was there on the streets and has the firsthand experience. And then Jonathan wrote this book about the history of the pro-life movement, uh, the Irish pro-life movement. And he has done an extensive amount of research into everything surrounding that. So we wanted to bring both of them on to talk about their experiences, talk about the research they've done and what they know about the Irish pro-life movement, about the Eighth Amendment, which protected pre-born children in the womb and about that whole entire story. This is a fascinating and a riveting story. We hope you stick with it to the end. Uh, it's the longest conversation we've had so far, but it is very, very, very well worth listening to. So um, here it is. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Neve, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. Very welcome. Delighted to be here. Yeah. And Jonathan, thank you. Thank you for coming back, my friend. Yeah, you bet. All right, uh, Neve. before we get into your story, the work that you did fighting abortion in Ireland, I th we thought it'd be important to set the stage um, for where we are in the context of Ireland. So uh, what we want to do is, is talk about the inception of the Eighth Amendment, this, this really revolutionary amendment that protected thousands, hundreds of thousands of preborn children. So um, I, I guess this is for, for both you and Jonathan, uh, but Neve, perhaps you could start with this. How, how did the Eighth Amendment come to be in Ireland? So the Eighth Amendment came to be, in summary, if you like, because people who are working, um, or who people who are interested in this issue in Ireland, pro-life people, ordinary people, saw what was happening in other countries. So they saw what had happened in the US, they saw what had happened in England, how the right to privacy or other rights could be interpreted as meaning that there was a legal right to abortion. And the Irish Constitution... Um, didn't also had a right to privacy and the people got together and lobbied and worked and campaigned um, and they were incredible people you know back in 1983 one of the one of the arguments used against inserting the amendment into the constitution was that people um, even though they knew themselves this, that they didn't believe it themselves but they scoffed at the notion that anyone would try to legalize abortion in Ireland. So it was like, we don't need this amendment. It's never going to happen here. Just because it happened in Britain or in, in, uh, in America, it's never going to happen here. But there were the same people, of course, who did want it to happen here. And that's why they wanted a no vote at the time. But the amendment, um, and you know, the people who worked on that campaign, some of them were still involved in the movement, you know, for the next 30 years, right up to the, the vote 2018. But they were, they were really prescient, you know, in, in, in what they understood would happen if you didn't have this constitutional amendment to protect the unborn child. And so they, it was put to the people uh, in a referendum in 1983 and was passed by a two thirds majority, huge majority. And um, the unborn children and their mothers had an equal right to life and they were both protected, you know, because often said of Ireland, oh, you had an anti-abortion law, but that was, it was more than that. It was a clause which protected the right to life of both mother and child. And one of the most amazing things about that was, was that Ireland be, became, um, if you like, a case. If you, if you looked at Ireland's experience, it was like a natural experiment in how pro-life laws actually work, because uh, we had excellent maternal mortality rates here in Ireland. We're one of the safest places in the world for a woman to have a baby. And at the same time, our law protected the right to life of the unborn child. And as you said, Peter, hundreds of thousands 
of babies were saved by that law. You know, if you look, and um, people have ran the, the numbers on this, actuaries and statisticians, and if you look at what happened in other countries, and if you look even what's happening in Ireland now, the way the abortion rate has shot up, literally anything from between 100,000 to 250,000 children's lives were spared because of the Eighth Amendment. And, and that's a tremendous achievement. Yeah, that, that most certainly is. But talking about other countries, it's important to note here that Ireland was really an anomaly mm. when it comes to some of these other Western nations. We see other Western nations pushing for contraception, for abortion, for um, really just being more enlightened, which basically means less human rights for preborn children. And um, so, Jonathan, you've researched extensively into the sexual revolution, um, into the history of abortion in the West. Uh, what was different about Ireland? Well, the first thing, of course, is what Neve mentioned, which was their prescience. I actually think that if more countries had successfully done what Ireland did with the Eighth, there would be many countries in the West that might have lasted as long as Ireland did, the United States mm -hmm. actually being one of them. And that prescience saved, as Neve pointed out, hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, the second point that I think is, is necessary for listeners to understand is that there's this basic assumption uh, promoted by the media that the reality of, the, uh, of of what took place on the ground was that the Eighth Amendment was just sort of a hangover from Ireland's medieval uh, past, and that now she was throwing off her Catholic yoke, and that this is just sort of the natural way things unfolded, when in reality, the story of how the Eighth Amendment was implemented is a fascinating one that every pro-life activist interested in strategy should study because it has a very, very comprehensive on-the-ground element as well as a political lobbyist element. And one of the things I'm frequently frustrated by is, is the uh, antagonism between the political wing that says, look, we have to do things, you know, very, 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 uh, with keeping PR in mind, we have to do things very properly. Uh, and then they, they kind of sneer at the grassroots wing who will be doing, you know, what we do with abortion victim photography, or, you know, having the rallies and generally being more rabble rousers. And, and the campaign to, to achieve the eighth, I think, perfectly showed that both of these arms are necessary, that you had lawyers, barristers, you had all of these incredible political strategists that were walking the halls and were actually speaking to politicians and were ensuring that the right wording was found and, and they were negotiating with different politicians. And then you had SPUC, a Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, and thousands and thousands of just ordinary people who were genuinely offended by the idea of abortion, who were on the ground ensuring that the average members of the public understood what was at stake and why they needed to get out there and vote. And those two arms together produced the Eighth Amendment. And together, the grassroots arm and the political arm uh, deserve the credit as a unified movement for those hundreds of thousands of babies that got saved. So that's something I think that we need to take away from it. Yeah. The reason it's it's particularly relevant right now, I think, again, with, the, with, the, with prevention is look what just happened in Argentina and then we'll look what happened, as you guys discussed on your podcast last week, in Honduras. Honduras looked at Argentina and said, "Wait, they're going to—they're going to bribe a handful of senators. They're going to—they're going to ramrod it through here. So what we need to do is create a constitutional amendment to make it almost impossible to remove it." And now there are other Latin American nations that are considering the same thing. And Ireland was the first one to do this, but it's a very relevant example because there are other nations that could be doing exactly the same thing and could save hundreds of thousands of babies as a result. One of the things Jonathan kind of, I think, just, you know, Jonathan's book, uh, Patriots, about the pro-life movement in Ireland, about the Eighth Amendment, and then what happened afterwards is brilliant. And, you know, I remember reading it and thinking, this is all the history 
I thought I knew, but he's actually discovered kind of so much or reminded me of so much. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating, extremely well-written. And one of the things he did remind me of was that you know people think, oh, 1983 Ireland was a very Catholic country. This is what people assume. And, you know, would it, the passage of the Eighth Amendment would have been easy, but that actually wasn't the case. You know, and he is completely correct. You had this huge grassroots movement made up of ordinary people who really did not want Ireland to become like other countries in Europe or throughout the world, where you're looking at these, like, ever-increasing abortion rates, the, the sadness associated with all of that. And they then worked, you know, to put pressure on politicians to accept what the campaign, what the campaign group was offering in terms of of the Eighth Amendment and the wording of the Eighth Amendment because there was resistance and kickback from politicians at the time in 1983. Like the country was starting to open up and become more liberal, become more progressive, to use their word, even though I can't ever imagine what they imagine is progressive on killing an innocent child, you know. But there was definitely kickback and, and, a, and a fight that happened in 1983. But what I suppose the big thing the pro-life movement had going for it was that the majority of people were very adamant in their opposition to abortion and the politicians were forced to listen to them and were forced to do the bit to, to, to put the matter to a referendum so that people could vote on it. And that was tremendously important. And I think it's what Jonathan is highlighting there is a message for all of us that, you know, grassroots movements can bring about change, even against all of the odds. Like the media in 1983 were totally against the Eighth Amendment. You know, they were in the same way that they've been for, in favour of abortion ever since. Like they ran editorials opposing it. They warned, they said that if, if, we, legalize, if we put the Eighth Amendment into the Constitution, that women would die. You know, it, it was a lot of the same scaremongering that unfortunately worked in 2018. So it wasn't the case that it was an easy victory for pro-lifers in 1983. It was difficult. It was hard won, and, but it was won and it saved all those lives. And I, I think you're totally right, Jonathan. You're looking at people in countries like Honduras and they're leading the way now. They're saying, let's get this, con this protection into the constitution so it can't be overturned by the legislation. It has to be something that the people decide. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that, uh, Jonathan, you mentioned that. And, and like you said, Neve, the, the grassroots are, are so vital. And, and when you look at what was happening around, you look at um, the UK, I believe, legalized abortion in 1967, America in 1973, um, Canada first mm -hmm. in 69, in and then again in 88. You see all of this stuff happening around Ireland, and, and yet the people of Ireland remaining steadfast. And, and I wonder, Neve, I, I'm sure this is a a big question to to ask and asking about kind of the the nature of Irish culture and whatnot. But when I when I look at Canada and, and I am certainly not mm. the, the best read person out there and Jonathan, you might correct me on this. But when I I look at Canada and how we interact on an international stage, I'm often reminded of the annoying younger brother where we look at everyone around us. We look at America, we look at Europe, we look at all these other countries and we're just trying to impress them. We're just trying to do something either before they did it, or we try to mimic whatever's happening south of the border. Toronto desperately wants to be New York. Um, the rest of Canada desperately wants to be Toronto. Um, we just want to fit in. All we want in Canada is to fit in. And yet, I think it's a very different story from my understanding of Ireland, that, that it's not a matter of trying to fit in with the UK. It's not a matter of trying to impress the people around you, but rather a unique and very well-defined um, identity, I guess. And and I know that um, as we'll get into as this develops, this this has changed in recent years, but could you speak a little bit to the, the long-held identity of the Irish people and how this may have built into the grassroots movement of putting in the Eighth Amendment? 
Well, I think that Ireland did have a strong sense of being a people to whom certain values and, and you know, the culture and the faith and that were, were part of what shaped of who we were. And, and I think that came under enormous attack. And that certainly a lot of that has gone from Irish society and how we how we see ourselves. And that, you know, just like what you're saying about Canada, there was a lot of people in Ireland, especially the people like the elites, the political and media elites, who were embarrassed by what they saw as Ireland's excessive Catholicism, if you like. And they were embarrassed by things like the Eighth Amendment. And when 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 uh, the European Parliament or the United Nations or, or other countries looked to Ireland's abortion laws and and said unfairly and incorrectly that they, you know, they were a breach of human rights, everything like that, that, that embarrassed progressives and liberals and, and, and the elite in Ireland. But it wasn't just... Uh, um, it wasn't just an inward change or, or an internal change. You had like incredibly powerful organizations, uh, like say um, the Center for Reproductive Rights in the United States. You know, these are people who raise money, enormous sums of money. Like we could never compete with this kind of thing. And um, um, from foundations, from Bank of America, from the Ford Foundation, you know, from these very rich organizations. And they actually organized the strategy and the court cases to attack the Eighth Amendment and to undermine Ireland's abortion law. So when you read about, you know, Ireland being taken to the United Nations, that was a sense of reproductive rights. It wasn't an Irish organization who organized those court cases. And then, of course, they generate international and national headlines, you know, um, um, saying that Ireland's laws had to change and they're barbaric and backward. But in fact, of course, they're progressive and humane. But everything, I think the culture is was changing. But And the culture was changing in regard to many things. But... And then Jonathan and I had this conversation about this, that even though Irish people have become very liberal on many issues, on the abortion issue, it was like it was a line in the sand they didn't want to cross. And right up to 2012, uh, at the time, Enda Kenny was Taoiseach here, and he was interviewed by Time magazine, and he was, you know, ma man of the year. I think he made the cover. It was a big deal. It was a big deal for, for him anyway. And... They asked him, there had been a European Court of Human Rights ruling saying that Ireland needed to legalise abortion, and they asked him about it, and he said, it's not going to happen because it's not what the people want. And he, he Enda Kenny was famous for, for governing by opinion poll. That's what he, he became most famous for, because everything he did, he polled on it. And he had done his polling, and he knew, like everybody knew from the opinion polls, that while Irish people, they might have wavered a bit, and they might want abortion legalized in some circumstances. In general, they didn't want to be like other countries. They thought abortion laws were too permissive and excessive there. And they, they would rather stay with the status quo than adopt a liberal abortion law. But then in 2012, the Savita Halepanava case blew all of that out of the water. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that case shortly. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get there, um, so for Cam and I, who have never known a home where preborn children were protected. Mm -hmm. Jonathan's significantly older than us, so he might. Um, but it's always been counter countercultural for us to be pro-life. And so, um, yeah. I'm I'm curious, what was it like? What was it like growing up? I mean, what what was 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 this position that the Eighth Amendment was good? Was that taught in school? How was it taught in school? Was this a point of national pride? Or, um, you know, I, I and when I say that, I I I think of you know, here to be pro-life is kind of like, yeah, you, you must hate women. And um, the status quo is to to not be pro-life. It's to be pro-choice and to, to accept abortion, at least for a number of circumstances. 
But what was the what was the status quo for you in Ireland and for for people who were I don't know just being taught about the Eighth Amendment about Irish history? Um, what was it like? So that's very a very interesting question because it goes back to what I said earlier about the fact that even though the people had voted for the Eighth Amendment, the establishment was against the Eighth Amendment. A lot of the political establishment, the media was absolutely against it, and of course, all of that starts to filter down then to how. Ha- how, what people hear about the Eighth Amendment and it also filters down, as you say, into the schools. So I would say that between 1983 and 1992, so the first nine or ten years of the existence of the Eighth Amendment, it certainly was thought as a positive thing. And even though there was a lot of kickback from the media, a lot of aggression about it, you know, it was evident, there was no evidence that it was impacting in any way negatively on medical care or everything like that. So while the media didn't like it, there wasn't a lot that they could say about it. And certainly, I think, a majority of people were very supportive of it. Then in 1992, there was um, a very well-known case, you've probably heard of it internationally, called the X case, where a pregnant rape victim um, wanted to go to England to have an abortion. And that invoked issues then around the right to travel and the right to information and and around the, the right, if you like, and around the abortion law itself. And it was... These cases have arisen in every country. And really, I think when you look at them, when you look at the pattern and the playbooks that have been kind of drafted around these very sad and difficult cases, you can see that the primary concern of those who use them as a battering ram against pro-life laws isn't with the rape victim. You know, it isn't with the woman who is confused or fearful or frightened here because there's never any interest in offering another solution or support you in any other way. It's simply like, okay, let's use this case to try to legalize abortion. So there certainly was a a furore at the time. There was a lot of international attention. You had a lot of international criticism of Ireland and um, there were marches, things like that. And that's when we founded Youth Defence to kind of be a counter to become, I suppose, the countercultural voice, because you certainly had you know, the media saying, oh, look, people have changed, young people want change, students are out marching. And Youth Defence, if you like, we're countercultural in that uh, we were speaking up against the media establishment and, and the political establishment in 1992, saying, no, like, the Eighth Amendment is a good thing. It protects this baby and every baby. And women deserve better than abortion. And we should continue to, 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 retain, the right to, life, to retain the right to life of unborn children in the Constitution. It probably didn't feel as countercultural as it became afterwards. Do you know, because I think even with the X case and kind of it was a, you know, a sad and difficult situation, and it makes people question their values and, and question what they believe in, especially when they're only hearing one side of it all the time. But it was still, the, 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 I suppose, if you like, the cult, the product culture was still strong. It certainly diminished over the years, and it diminished because, like what you just highlighted, Peter, after. The media began to make, for example, to criticise schools for showing pro-life videos or having pro-life speakers in. That impacted on people who were going through schools then because they weren't hearing that anymore. You know, you had uh, colleges, campuses becoming increasingly liberal places, only they they banned pro-life groups. They wouldn't let pro-life groups have stalls on campus or have speakers in. Like every time you brought Janet Jessen over to speak one time and she ended up speaking a lot of time in the lobby of the university because they, they cancelled the room at the last minute. This slow drip of kind of undermining the pro-life position of, 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 of relentlessly pushing one point of view in the media, in the schools, on campuses, oh, of course all of that had an effect. So by the time 2018 came around, did it feel more countercultural than it did in 1992 when we started New Defence? Yeah, of course it did. And I think that happens in every country where... where, where um, 
laws become more liberal. As, you know, one of the things I always think about this, though, is that people are sheep, unfortunately. Do you know, and it, it's, it's, it's more of a hallmark of the modern mind than it probably would have been of my parents' generation, where people were more independent-minded and were more able to think for themselves and to kind of assess an argument and say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. So sadly, and I know it's an unpopular thing to say, but people are sheep. And if, if pro-life was the trendy thing in the morning, they'd all be pro-life. <laughs> that's a, that's sadly, that's the truth of it. But abortion became um, a repeal of the Eighth Amendment became um, a movement that, that was trendy and popular and progressive and pushed by the media and pushed by everybody in power. And um, people like to people like to support causes that are trendy. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan, I want to throw a question to you because I, so you're the author of the book Patriots that we're we're talking about today, the untold story of Ireland's pro life movement and. Mm. Um, not to pump your tires too much, but when I read this book and I, I read how the Eighth Amendment came to be and, and a lot of what we've talked about so far, th- this reads like an epic novel where you see these rises of opposition that come in and and you say like, oh, no, it's going to it's going to crack at this. The the baby X case like, oh, no, that this is played out in other countries and this is where another country fell. And, and this other case that came up and whatnot, as you were researching um, the, the story of Ireland, as you were researching the the story of Ireland's pro-life movement and how you had always kind of seen Ireland as the crown jewel within the pro-life movement of this nation, which could survive mm-hmm. with um, abortion being prohibited in all cases. And yet maternal health um, is so wonderfully looked after, all that sort of thing. What was going through your mind as you were researching this, as you were learning more and more about Ireland's pro-life movement in this this period of I, I would say even the late 70s, bringing about the the Eighth Amendment into the 80s and into the early 90s, as Neve mentioned, into 92, um, which is getting close to the the emergence of youth defense and a more active defense of, of pro-life laws. What was it like kind of researching how a nation that was already pro-life had enshrined this with an Eighth Amendment was still on their toes, making sure that they were able to maintain this pro-life legislation, maintain a pro-life culture in many ways. What was it like kind of learning about this? And and especially as you learned more and more about other countries, which hadn't been as well prepared, hadn't been as effective in preventing abortion coming to their shores. Well, there's three, three primary things um, that I took away from it. It reads like an epic novel because it really is, it really is an epic story. Um, from start to finish, it, and it has it has all of the ingredients of, of an epic story as well. And one of one of the the most gratifying things for me uh, of those who read and reviewed the book was that they said they felt reluctant to initially pick it up because they knew how the story ends, and then they were really really glad they did because they realized that the, that the story was such an incredible one. The first thing I think um, is really important about the story, just more generally speaking. And my colleagues at CCBR, of course, will already know this because I've I've forced endless amounts of information on this um, on you all. Is is the various strategic insights that we can get from it? I think the story is incredibly relevant because there's so much that our movement can learn, and and I think that we don't spend enough time uh, in our individual countries examining how movements in other countries do things because there are plenty of things that are regionally specific, which is why showing up in another country and telling people how to run their movement is idiotic and and arrogant because they have a different cultural context. But there are always some things that I think are very transferable. Uh, The second thing is it's incredibly inspirational because I had to ask myself while I was researching the story and while I was in Ireland prior to the 8th, 
if I would have if I would have done what they did for all those years to make it happen, right? I ran some numbers um, just after after the the vote in 2018, and the pro life movement in Ireland saved roughly five percent of the existing population, and that's a low estimate. Five percent—that's incredible. But why did they do that? It's because they put boots on the ground every day in a country where abortion was already illegal, right? Like many of you, I was motivated to join the pro-life movement by seeing a video of a baby being pulled apart and realizing this is happening in, in, in my city. It's happening, you know, in the next city over. I can't believe this is actually going on. But I don't know if I would have gotten involved the way I did if I'd seen a video like that and just got to feel sort of smug that this was going on elsewhere, but we were safe because we had the right laws. And so I think that, that that lesson all by itself is a real challenge for us to recognize that the pro-life movement, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And this is to, to build a culture of life, we have to be always building a culture of life, right? Like G.K. Chesterton said, if you want to have a white fence post, you must always be painting the fence post. And the same thing is true of a culture of life. And I, the Irish story really did teach me that. The third thing is something I've grown increasingly passionate about over the last five years. And it's as we realize around the world that the pro-life fight is a long fight, is it so important that we tell the stories of our own heroes? Because what we're seeing is that the only people who tell the stories of, of, of you know, the heroes of the pro-life and the pro-family movement are those who hate our guts, want to lie about us, and very frequently want to present a version of the story that's garbage and designed to further <laughs> perpetrate the injustices and the corruption that they seek to, to, to uh, integrate into our culture. So last year, for example, we saw a movie come out about Gloria Steinem in Hollywood which was a, basically this, you know, hagiography of Gloria Steinem, virgin and martyr, uh, and it was just a total, it was it was just a total pile of steaming garbage from from start to finish. And then a, and then a series about a Catholic housewife who you know wrote ninety two books, you know, after her kids were six kids were in bed, and then ran a movement that single handedly stopped the Equal Rights Amendment and prevented abortion uh, from becoming mainstream in the Republican Party. Uh, you know, she took on the establishment, and they created this mini series about her. They waited till after she was dead because they were too scared of her, even when she was in her 90s, where, you know, she was doing business with the Klan and she's a race. She's this awful person. Right. Well, that is what a generation of people are going to grow up thinking about Phyllis Schlafly, um, because we've never written her story. We've never put her in a documentary. The only biography of her uh, personal biography was written you know, before the ERA was defeated by Carol Felsenthal, who's a liberal. Um, and so what, right after the amendment uh, was the Eighth Amendment was repealed in Ireland. I remember reading all the news reports and there was all this garbage about, you know, these the, the vanguard of the patriarchy had finally been vanquished, right? And Ireland could finally start to move into the sunlit day of infanticide. You know, this was this was all over, right? The long night has passed and here we are hugging in front of uh, the castle where the British used to exercise their imperial rule. It was a really beautiful moment, but it didn't resemble reality in any way, shape or form. And I, I thought, like, if we don't tell this story, and I think I'm probably slightly better equipped to tell the story only because I can be more honest about the Irish movement because they won't actually admit how extraordinary what they accomplished was, yeah. and they would never write the things about themselves that I wrote about them. So I do think that you need a degree of separation to actually write the things that other people wouldn't. The same thing is uh, true for Joe Scheidler who actually uh, asked Neve about this later, does does pop up in Neve's life early on as well. Uh, you know, the Washington Post eulogy for Joe Scheidler managed to, like they said, you know, he never advocated violence, but he didn't seem that sad about it, right? Even when they couldn't find any garbage about him, they had to dredge up something 
And yeah. so I think as we recognize that, you know, in the next 40 years, we are going to have to work day in and day out. And one of the things we have to do is if we want to explain to younger generations of people, thanks for that joke earlier, Peter, about why they should get involved, um, we're going to have to tell the stories of our own heroes. Yeah. And we're going to have to explain that if we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's because we stand on the shoulders of giants. And if we tell those stories well, maybe people are going to want to emulate them. Maybe they'll be inspired by them. Maybe you have somebody who wants to be the next Joe Scheidler, who wants to be the next John O'Reilly, who wants to be the next Neve. We need those people to come up and do that work. But in order for that to happen, we need to tell those stories first. I totally agree. I totally agree. And when, when Jonathan you know, first went to write the book. Like, uh, to be honest, at the time, I think everyone was so brokenhearted, nobody wanted to write a book at all. But he, he is 100% right. And, you know, someone should make a documentary about Joe Scheidler. When I was young, Joe Scheidler came to stay in my family home. And I remember he was just such a giant of a man in every way and so lovely and warm-hearted and powerful and inspirational, everything. And he left my mother, um, for my mother's use, photographs of aborted babies. And when I saw them a couple of years later, like it, it shocked me to my core. And just like Jonathan, it was one of the reasons why when the X case happened in 1992, that even though my family was always involved in pro-life, it really spurred me to action because that you don't get that image out of your head. You know, that it, that awful image of that little broken body that that should never be happening. It should never happen that, that a women ever have to feel that this is the only answer that's out there for them or that people put into law that it's, you are illegally, it's legally uh, permissible for you to do this to another human being. But you're right about telling our stories and you're right about inspiring people that way because, you know, what, what do people know about the pro-life movement, what they read in the media. And what Jonathan did, I suppose, was gather some of the stories and the, the facts and, and everything else that made the pro-life movement in Ireland. And remember when Jonathan, you were looking at some of the stuff and Emmett Glynn, that cameraman, was looked at it too. And he said one of the things that he loved about youth defence, say between 92 and the next 10 years, there was very punk. You know, and I never thought you'd fess as punk. So I was like, really? And he said, yeah, like you were just unafraid to do what needed to be done. So if, if there was a, a big political convention on and you want to interrupt it with a pro-life message, you just sailed on and then did it. Like, you know? and, and you took the flack and you took the media criticism for that. But boots on the ground as well. You are correct about that. A movement that doesn't have boots on the ground is not going to succeed. It doesn't matter how great you are on social media. It doesn't matter, you know, how clever your messaging is. If you're not out there and you're not visible and kind of being seen to be part of the community or being seen to be an active voice in your country, it's difficult to have a really powerful impact. And I think because so many people were involved in 1983, when we set up uh, um, Youth Defence then in reaction to the X case in 92, there was a, a lot of people out there who were used to being activists. And then we were we were very activist focused, you know, we didn't, we wanted to get out there and do things and hold protests and make our voices heard and let people see what the reality of abortion was. So it, it was, it just became part of the movement automatically. And it was, it was the driving force behind everything that was done, I think, to keep abortion out of Ireland was this kind of commitment to the movement, this commitment to being active, this commitment to always putting the message out there and to do what I think is often the most powerful thing of all, which is, is to, to meet people face to face, to show them the reality of abortion and to talk to them about why it can never be the answer in a in a civilized society, about why there always has to be a better answer than this, than in this to a baby. And that was a... That was always part of what we did, often, often in the face, you know, of severe opposition, of, of police arresting people because they were showing 
reality of abortion of police arresting people because um, they were they were protesting at a at a at politicians clinic and stuff like that. But but uh, I think the movement persevered because. The motivation is the same for all of us. The motivation is to protect those who are so vulnerable. All right. This is a good transition, Neve, into your story and some of the work that you did. Before that, for those of you who are listening, if you want to get your hands on Jonathan's book, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement, you can find it at thebridgehead.ca forward slash shop. Thebridgehead.ca forward slash shop. Okay, Neve. so you saw an image. Uh, Joe Scheidler came to your to your home. You saw the images of aborted children. Um, you, you got involved in 1992. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about that? I, I, and when I say that, I, I'm thinking of there are a lot of people who see the images but don't end up doing anything. Um, but you ended up doing something. We, we see the inception of youth defense in which you were a significant part um, working with other people. And, and part of this as well is one of the things that we hear in Canada when we're talking, trying to get people to fight abortion is they're like, well, I can never get involved because, you know, abortion is so far along that we're never going to change the tide anyway. And I can see the temptation in Ireland being the other way, being, well, abortion's legal. Why is it necessary for me to get involved? I think at the end of the day, people just don't want to get involved when they're giving some sort of excuse like that. But could you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, you getting involved um, the inception of youth defense and the work that you guys did in mobilizing people to be active for the babies, even when you had the Eighth Amendment in place? Well, sometimes, you know, things arise because of timing. And, you know, when we set up youth defense, we didn't have a grand plan or strategy or anything. We were set up in a reaction to, to the X case and to that very immediate threat that we had to deal with straight away. And Sometimes I think too, you know, whether it's it's God's hand or, or, or otherwise, like you get a group of people together who have all the ingredients that is required to really start an activist organization. And so I think both of those things, like we, had, I suppose it was prompted by this immediate threat um, to having the Eighth Amendment overturned by the, by the Supreme Court. And so that drew a lot of people out who were saying, okay, well, this is no longer, you know, so this is even worse than, than what we might have imagined before 1983 because now it's real and it's on our doorsteps and we have to fight, fight to fight back against it. So you had a lot of people, I think, who joined the movement because, because the X case happened. But then in Youth Defence, there just happened to be like a particular mix of people who had skills and um, I suppose courage, to be honest, you know what I mean? Because it's, I can understand, Peter, why sometimes people think, you know, this is not a fight for me, even if I'm opposed to abortion and very pro-life, because there is a lot of hate you know, directed at pro-life people from from the establishment who have the power in the media and elsewhere, and sometimes in the law to, to, um, to put down pro-life activists or to, to try to restrict what they do or to try to restrict, restrict their reach. So it, it isn't... I think sometimes always the easiest battle in the world. But if you have the right team of people and who have those kind of skills and attitudes and, and who have the right, I think, you know, the right attitude in that they know why they are doing this. It's not to be a leader or it's not to be an activist or it's not, it, it's because you, you understand abortion is wrong. And that's what motivates you. You know, when I saw those photographs, 
it was the cruelty and the injustice of it that motivated me. And that should always be your motivation, that you, you wanted to put an end to that cruelty and injustice and you want to do better for women. And we had those kind of people in YD from the very, from the very beginning. And they probably were, you know, to use Emma Glynn's phrase, a bit punk, like, you know. So they, were, they, they did things like, you know, climbed up to the, to, the, to the roof of a university building and dropped a 40-foot banner down the entire front of it because they wouldn't let us have a student <laughs> table there, you know. The stuff like that that I think people were not, didn't, might not have imagined that the, the pro-life movement would, would do. So the, the focus was always to be active, to reach out to people, to keep the issue before people's minds, you know, to make people understand, like, you need... Uh, first of all, this is the truth about abortion. Second of all, you need to be active in opposing it or it will come in to the back door. And third, that if you are part of the movement, you have to always kind of reach out and try to bring other people to the reality of abortion to, to, to a better understanding of the issue. And then from that came, like, st the strategies came then, you know, like the, the putting together better messaging, um, organising roadshows, organising rallies, like becoming a national organisation with branches and thousands of members. It, it all, it all, that all came then, but it, it wasn't there at the beginning. At the beginning, it was a reaction to a court case. And it was more, I think, the fact that the people who, who joined were very committed to this cause and understood the need to be active that kind of led it then to become a very successful organisation. Okay, so Baby X has been mentioned a few times, this court case. Mm -hmm. Could you, um, or Jonathan, you can dive into this as well, but could you elaborate for our listeners, who is Baby X, um, and, and what was the, the strategy that abortion supporters were using with this baby? So it was a, a case involving um, a young girl who um, was raped and had become pregnant, and that then led to the Supreme Court looking at the eighth. Amendment, the High Court and then the Supreme Court looking at the Eighth Amendment and saying that actually they were going to interpret it now as not being a complete ban on abortion, but in the case where a woman was suicidal after being raped, that, that gave her a right to have an abortion. So they no longer view the equal rights of the mother of the, as the, of the mother and child as a ban on abortion, as complete ban on abortion, but something that could be interpreted differently. So between 1992 then, if you like, for the next, you know, until... 2012, you had other cases like that arising. For example, you had the C case where a 13-year-old girl was raped, and it was a particularly distressing and an awful case, and um, again, brought to England for an abortion, but she was in the care of the state. And those cases were, you know, used, I think, by abortion campaigners and by the media to try to build support for, for repealing the Eighth Amendment. But that sometimes didn't work out quite as they had planned. Like, for example, in the C case, the young woman at the centre of that case, when she became older, spoke out and said that actually she had never requested an abortion. Mm -hmm. And she said that she had been brought to England for that abortion without her consent and without her full knowledge. And that afterwards it caused her, you know, to really suffer grievously and to to endure, I suppose, not just abortion regret, but to endure the loss of her child that she had not requested and had not wanted. So she was an incredibly brave woman, you know, to, to speak out like that. And I suppose what that did in effect, that our, our, our role in the pro-life movement was to amplify what she had said and try to bring that message to, to people and to, to, to do that all of the time, you know, to try with street sessions and road shows and campaigns and billboard campaigns and all of those things to, to try to get people to understand 
know actually, but you might have read this story in the Irish Times or heard it in RT, but there's another side to this. And here's a side that you hadn't heard. And this side is one that supports retaining the Eighth Amendment and that shows that abortion isn't, isn't the answer. And th that, even though you had those cases, so like X and C arising during that period of time, between 1992, 20 years, if you like, to, until 2012, you didn't have um, the public support tipping over into a strong push to repeal the Eighth Amendment until the death of Savita Halepinava. Because you had this constant battle, you know, so you had the media and the political establishment pushing against the eighth all the time, and then you had pro-life groups working all of the time to reach out to people to say, that's not the full story, here's some more information, here's the, here's the truth about the reality of abortion, here's what it did in, the, in this case. And that retained, that up, up, you know, it kept public opinion strongly pro-life. No, there's a, a couple of things in relation to that that are, I think, important currently as well. The first thing for listeners to really understand is that this is a classic strategy that has worked almost everywhere, which is that uh, the, the abortion activists go trawling for corpses or tragic circumstances that they can use to uh, basically incur public compassion and then utilize that compassion to create the public will to legislate on abortion. So in the United States, some of you might remember that Jane Roe, Roe v. Wade, they claimed that she had been raped, even though she had not, in order to ensure she was a more sympathetic plaintiff. In Ireland, you have uh, the, the X case, the C case, and several other cases. In Argentina recently, if you want to know how deceitful the media is, you have an example of a woman who was raped and apparently denied an abortion that was making headlines everywhere. And, and, and what the articles didn't mention in almost every circumstance is that abortion was actually legal in the case of rape in Argentina, and that this had no bearing on the situation that was actually taking place. When I was researching the book, there was evidence in multiple books, including those by abortion activists, that they were looking for a case like this, reviewing hospital records, and actively attempting to find something. I think the one, and this will be my last point, the one really relevant uh, point that people don't consider very often is that if these cases were common, the abortion activists wouldn't have to look for them, <laughs> right? One of the reasons Ireland was such an offense to the pro-abortion West at large is because there wasn't women dying in back alleys with coat hangers. Uh, all of the things they warned us would take place if abortion was legalized didn't happen in Ireland. And as long as Ireland maintained the level of maternal health care that it had while uh, also concurrently banning abortion, they were just this constant proof that everything the abortion activists were telling the rest of us um, was in fact a lie. There were not women pregnant women killing themselves after sexual assault. Again, these are these are purely hypothetical circumstances that have never actually occurred because if they had occurred, we would all have heard about them so many times that we wouldn't be able to count. They would have been on headlines everywhere. If a pregnant woman had ever killed herself in a country where abortion was illegal because of a sexual assault that she had endured, the New York Times would, it would make it the front page and we would never stop hearing about it. So the very fact that these things have not been reported on, despite the fact that abortion activists have spent decades searching for them, is evidence that these are merely hypotheticals being utilized to victimize preborn children. Yeah, one of the things that came out about the C case afterwards was that the woman, you know, that young rape victim said precisely that. She said that she felt her case had been used by abortion campaigners. And she pointed out that 
her life became very difficult after the abortion and that none of them were there to offer her support. None of them were there to offer her help. None of them wanted to know about her anymore once she had, if you like, fulfilled what they wanted her to do, which is to, to be brought to England for an abortion, which, which caused her so much hurt and harm. And it was a very important insight, I think, into how abortion campaigners really see women. And how really see those difficult cases, you know, that they are simply there to be exploited to try to build public opinion in support of abortion. But they're not, they don't really have that kind of compassion and love and support for, the, for women in those difficult circumstances that you see all of the time in the pro-life movement. And, you know, I've pointed this out to people so often, like the pro-life movement is meant to be anti-women, but it's the pro-life movement who run the crisis pregnancy centres. It's the pro-life movement who genuinely want to offer women a better answer. All abortion campaigners want to offer them is abortion. They pretend it's a choice, but it's literally like, you can have abortion, I don't, want to, I don't want to know anything else. I don't want to know about any of the ways that I might help you. In her case, it was like, we, we don't want to know about you anymore now that the abortion is over and done with, even though her life is very difficult and even though she needed that help. And just one last point in relation to what Jonathan said there, but Julie Kay from the Centre for Reproductive Rights, who's a Planned Parenthood lawyer, if you like, and she said that Ireland was the jewel in the crown of the pro-life movement for two reasons. One was because we had this record of maternal mortality, just like what Jonathan says. You couldn't use the boogeyman anymore because Ireland had shown that, in fact, our maternal mortality was better than Britain's, was better than most countries in, in Europe because we had excellent maternal health care while, while banning abortion. And... The second reason, which was revealed when Wiki, when there was a WikiLeaks dump of the of the One Foundation documents, so the, the foundation that George Soros, Soros runs, and it showed that he had given a lot of money to abortion campaigners in Ireland, hundreds of thousands of euros, precisely because the One Foundation felt that the Open Foundation, sorry, felt that this was um, Catholic country. And if you managed to legalize abortion, what was perceived as a very Catholic country you could do the same in other Catholic countries in South America and elsewhere. So Ireland was very important to abortion campaigners internationally. And, and I think that's so important to note of just how, not only sinister, but how organized the pro-abortion machine is in trying to thrust abortion into every single corner of the earth to make sure that pre-born children can be murdered anywhere um, and, and ripped apart in their mother's wombs. And... Yeah. And one thing that I wanted to ask Neve, so we there we can definitely um dive further into the discussion with um the encounters that you've had with the media and trying to correct and um show light into these completely warped and twisted um stories that that we've talked about here but maybe share a little bit about your interactions on the street level because when i when i'm out on the street doing our, our pro-life outreach our choice change displays talking to the everyday canadians about abortion um it's not uncommon that i bring up the the example of ireland especially to show that you know what Abortion was not necessary for good quality maternal health and, and things like that. And and how important it is and, and seeing people's eyes open when they realize that they've been lied to by the media, when they realize like, oh, um, this this wasn't actually what the story was. And, and this guy just provided evidence showing that this isn't what this was about. I'm sure that as whether it's the baby C case or, or the countless others that the media tried to bring up to show just how barbaric the pro-life laws were, what were interactions like? on the street, talking to everyday Irish people about what was actually happening, what the, the Irish media was actually trying to achieve. Did you get that kind of revelation of, oh my goodness, I'm being lied to? Or were people so kind of 
plugged into the media that it was really, really hard work to get them to realize that they were being lied to ultimately. Well, when you did things like street sessions, which we did for years, of course, in defense and then Life Institute, and when we did door-to-door canvassing, which was a huge part of the campaign, um, right from 2016, really, up, up, to, up to 2018, until the vote in 2018, those personal interactions are enormously important because you're talking to somebody face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and you're having an actual genuine conversation with them, and you're answering the genuine questions that they have about things like pregnancy from rape, about things like the case of Sarita Halepanagra, you know, all of the questions that people have about what will happen if abortion is legalised, what will happen with the abortion rate, you know, what does it mean for, for women, what does it mean for maternal health care, you know, what's the reality in relation to the numbers of babies with Down syndrome who are aborted once abortion becomes legal, all of these pressing questions that people have. The difficulty we encountered was this, is that when Sabita Halepanagra died, even though three subsequent inquiries showed that she had in fact died of sepsis and that the Eighth Amendment did not prevent the doctors from intervening to save her life. They just didn't realise she had sepsis, they didn't realise her life was in danger. That's a very important distinction. In other words, what I'm saying is that in her case, the doctors were perfectly free under the Eighth Amendment to intervene and to deliver her baby. And that was not considered an abortion. It was never considered. Those kind of interventions were never considered an abortion line because the intention there, of course, to save the life of the mother. But they had missed Savita's sepsis. They had missed 13 opportunities to see that she had sepsis with spikes in temperature, white blood cell counts, everything like that. And it was one of those tragic cases that was immediately seized on by the Irish media. And they, estab- they managed to establish this narrative in the minds of Irish people that Savita Halepanavra died because she couldn't get an abortion, that she died because of the Eighth Amendment. And in normal circumstances, it would have been the things like the canvas and the street sessions and the media debates and all of that helps to to bring to shine a light, to show the truth about, about those issues. It became extraordinarily difficult to do so in this case because the narrative that they were um, trying to establish they had such power to do so with the media and they it became like a barrage of propaganda that became very difficult for people to overcome. And then something else happened, I think, to help embed that narrative was that um, where previously the doctors in Ireland had been overwhelmingly pro-life, you had some doctors who were politically motivated who started to speak out to say, well, you know, the Eighth Amendment needs to go. If it wasn't for the Eighth Amendment, Savita Halepanava would have had medical intervention, even though that wasn't true. They were the only medical voices that the media wanted to give any time to. So we had like appalling instances during the referendum campaign itself, where, you know, when the yes vote started to slip, the media just shut down pro-life doctors, pro-life nurses, eminent experts, the people who had been the chair of the Institute of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Four of them came out and signed a letter saying, "Look, this is not correct. This is not the medical. This is not medical. This is not a true interpretation of medical practice. That Savita was entitled to the care that she needed." The media just effectively shut down those voices and only concentrated on the voices of pro-abortion doctors, and that became very difficult to overcome because, really, if you're an ordinary voter and you have met. John, you know, me or Johnson or any of you on the street, and you have been you have been convinced and impressed by the arguments we put forward. But then you go back and you look on TV that evening and you only hear 
pro-abortion medical experts saying, no, the fact of the matter is Bethan needs to go. It becomes of a matter of who do you believe then, you know? And that was, it was very difficult for the truth about that case to be heard, especially around the time of the vote in the referendum. All right, folks. That was part one of two of our conversation with Jonathan Van Maren, author of the book Patriots, the Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement, and Neve Evelyn, central figure in that pro-life movement, co-founder of Youth Defense and longtime pro-life ambassador in Ireland. You heard me right. That is part one of two. We were having such a great conversation with the two of them that we have decided to break this into two episodes. So tune in next week to learn more about the Save the Eighth campaign and more about how Ireland was successful in protecting over 250,000 lives from abortion um, through the Eighth Amendment. That said, a couple of end notes here to, to keep in mind. First of all, we are doing a giveaway of the, um, a signed copy of the book Patriots by Jonathan Van Maren. If you want to enter into that, then please go to one of the podcast catchers that allows you to leave a comment and a review. I know that some of them don't, but if you can head to one, maybe it's not your normal one, but maybe it's one that um, allows you to leave a comment and a rating, please do so. We'll get that just for confirmation. If you can snap a, a quick screenshot of it and send it along to us either at our email, which is um, email at prolifeguys.com. Um, you can send it to us on any of the social media hubs that we're on, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, any any number of other ones that we're there on. And that will get you a signed copy of the book Patriots by Jonathan Van Maren. Two other things that I'll mention, um, as we, we said off the top, we are having our first Ask Me Anything, which is really an Ask Us Anything, on Friday, March 7th, at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Again, Friday, March 5th at 7.30 Eastern Standard Time. If you want to be a part of that, if you want to bounce questions off of Peter and I, how would we respond to it um, if somebody asked us this on the street, in your home, at the dinner table, or online, please do. To be a part of that, you have to be registered on our Patreon as a patron by Friday, February 26th. And so the time's running out on that. Please sign up. It can be at any level that you're able to do so. Patreon supporters um, enable us to continue to grow this podcast, get on incredible guests like you've seen in the last number of months. And we've got a ton more coming down the tube for you. And so please do check that out. The last thing I'll mention Many of you have heard over the the various episodes that we've done about CCBR summer internships. These programs equip people to be pro-life ambassadors, not only giving them the training, but also the experience and mentorship that they need to be leaders in Canada's pro-life movement and the pro-life movement around the world. If you want to be a part of our summer internship, we know there's going to be some modifications this summer due to the COVID-19 pandemic and all the guidelines and restrictions and whatnot. However, We are still recruiting interns. We'd love to have you as a part of the team. And so check out the show notes for how to apply. And we hope to see you there again. Look forward to seeing you next week um, as we continue the conversation with Jonathan and Neve. And I hope that you have a wonderful rest of the day, whatever time it is, wherever you're at. Thanks so much for tuning in. 